Cheers! What's up everybody? This is Paul Sfurlea and I want to welcome you back to a new episode of Hospitality Secrets Podcast. This uh, second season, I'm asking thousands and thousands of questions because I'm, I'm eager to find out as much as it, I can find out about uh, the concept of hospitality. And I want to find out from, from the, the best hospitality experts from, uh, from the industry. And uh, I reach out to, to most of the, the persons in the hospitality industry who are willing to share their passion of, of, on uh, hospitality, who are... Uh, willing to help the industry and spread the word of hospitality during these uh, hard times. So in this uh, episode, actually, this is a special episode because instead of one surprise guest, I'm having two surprise guests and I'm uh, super honored. <laughs> I'm super honored to introduce you uh, the, the, the incredible cocktail couple they are called or cocktail guru Anastasia Miller and Jared Brown who, who together wrote more than 30 books about cocktails about this uh, beautiful industry and uh, they are the directors of the Mixelani uh, Limited so actually they are spreading the words as they were saying they are spreading lots of words in the hospitality industry they are very passionate about this industry passionate about these cocktails and i'm super honored to to have them here as guests so uh anastasia jared thank you very much for coming to have uh, to to this podcast welcome to hospitality secrets well thank you paul thank you for inviting us always like to talk to Eastern Europe whenever we can. It's hard to do in these days, but soon we go back and come and see you. We hope. And thank we you hope. so much for that wonderful introduction. <laughs> I'm doing my best. <laughs> thank you very much. I I like words and, and uh, talking about hospitality and cocktails and uh, we, we share a common passion. I'm, I'm super honored and thank you very much for accepting the invitation. Uh, where are you now for uh, for the listeners? At home. <laughs> we live out, outside of Bath, um, about 90 minutes west of London in England. So we live out in the English countryside. Nice, nice. And, and, and from what I see, you have plenty of books uh, there. And uh, <laughs> These are just books on drink, a, a very small part of our collection, our, our personal library. We have about 1,200 in our collection. 1,200 uh, books about drinks. Wow. Books about drink and other things. For example, here in England, throughout the history of drink, the government regulated drink like anywhere else. So the excise acts that affected production of alcohol here so we also have originals of most of those wow this that's is a... one from 1825 that's of particular interest because this one says that you cannot have a still under 400 gallons or 1800 liters and from the time this was passed small distilling disappeared in England gradually just the small stills died out. No new ones could open because of this act. Until you and your partners came along. And my partners <laughs> and I overturned this act. And when we did it, there were 12 distilleries in Britain making gin back in 2008. On the basis of the legal work, there are now 500 making over a thousand brands of gin in wow. England. 
and so, and and then the gene craze started and and fl- flourished the the gene production and uh, the gene uh, passion that it's all around the world today yeah, yeah. it's surprising how it's how it's, how it's come back to what it was mm. it, in the 1800s which was fantastic when you could try different personalities of gin different regions had different styles of gin you know you had gin for different occasions and it wasn't just here you've got a bottle of a bottle of tank you've got a bottle of beef you've got da, 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 boom. so it's been it's been fantastic to watch but going back to that early gin craze i can't search the web on that this one from 1729 a complete body of distilling explaining the mysteries of that science um if we just look at what they were saying about gin in 1729 actually they were still calling it geneva geneva in 1729 the word, the word gin had only appeared as a slang term you wouldn't use it in a proper book quite yet but they said Geneva has more several and different names and titles than any other liquor that is sold here as double geneva royal geneva celestial geneva tittery colonia straight fire etc and has gained such universal applause especially with the common people that by a moderate computation there's more of it in quantity sold daily in a great many distillers shops than of beer and ale vended in most public houses. Okay. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. <laughs> That's so interesting to go back and and find out actually the 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 history and what happened before because history is repeating. <laughs> Very much so, but we're also changing a lot of history. That's been basically what we've been up to since about 1995. Yes. Yes. That's been so, a while. <laughs> 1995 when this happened. Yeah. That's the uh, which that's the first book shaken. This, this is the new edition of the first book. Yeah. Yeah. Shaken not started a celebration of the martini. In 1995 we were travel writers writing books about British Columbia and Vancouver and Victoria. And a friend said, "You know this internet I think it's going to be big. Uh, oh, oh. You should get on it. Build a website. We put up a martini website because Anastasia was sitting in front of the computer. I was holding two martinis. In 6 months, it had exploded with people emailing their favorite recipes, arguing with our history, recommending bars and bartenders and a New York publishing house. emailed and said they wanted to turn it into a book. Oh. <laughs> so and it was it like became, exploded. It, it, yeah. It yeah, became like the that. world's best selling book on the martini which it still is today. Nice. Congratulations and 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 I know I I, I read about it. I I read from it and and congratulations for for writing the history. <laughs> Well, now the thing is tricky is is because when we first wrote it in the 1990s, we didn't know half as much as we know now. So a lot of the things that were in that book, we had to revise back in 2012. But then there's another problem because we still hadn't learned the one thing that we know even sooner uh because Jared got convinced me I had to I had to translate a book 
from 1630s. So now we know that the origin of gin is not what everybody knows it is. But what's what's the real origin of gin? It did not come over from Holland. Germany. It did not evolve from Geneva. Germany. And it was here much earlier. Yeah. Whoa. No, this yeah. is a secret. That's why I'm calling hospitality secret. So this is like a a, a well-known, not well, not so well-known secret. So gin no is one not knows. coming from all Holland. Is not no. coming from Geneva. No. It's coming from Germany. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And how yeah, was it yeah. called? Uh, it was it was called well it was called aquafructum uh, aquafructum or water of fruits or water of spices. Well, that was a different one. That was yeah, spirits of spices. Spirit of spice. Spirits of spices. Wow. Um, they, they, I, because I've been going to university and getting two master's degrees, now finishing my doctorate. Uh, I'm spending a lot more time in secret places where there's a lot more of this information hiding away from everybody in the hospitality industry. <laughs> so it's been fun discovering uh, the, the shocking, shocking history of things the way they were, that, that uh, it wasn't some crazy physician who came up with gin, but it was, you're going to love this, it was between the alchemists trying to figure out how to make gold out of nothing and and uh, women at home in the kitchen wow with their advice books figuring out how to make these these medicines what became medicines became social and it started in germany in fact it was became illegal in germany to do this in the 1500s where it took until the 1700s in england for the same thing to happen so on 200 years before earlier in, yeah. Ger- in Germany they already forbidden it there and then it, it yeah. moved from from Holland and then yeah. the, is the course as we know it well Holland is not even part of the picture <laughs> Holland Holland began making juniper spirit after England after as far as we can tell yeah oh. so, so this is this is a completely different view of it uh It, it, it started because Jared found this one book that he said online and he said, hey, I can't read this. And I went, okay. So I didn't think too much of it. And then, okay, I finally said, well, I've got a little bit of time. Let me take a look. I take a look at this thing. It's all done in astrology symbols and little weird characters and squiggles. And I'm like, it was written in code. Oh, boy. Uh, and it took a year. Let's see if I can find in it. In code and Old English lettering and yeah. old english language and it has got wow. words yeah. plus two different types of code yeah so no way. it was in, it, in a book they coded like two different types of codes and yeah you don't see? know if you can see yeah i can see it yeah but it was all written in astrological symbols and codes so yeah yeah you can <laughs> understand <laughs> so how long so, took you to to translate that a year wow one year it took a year and then i found a copy of the uh of a book that had a little supplement in it not the whole book but just a a little supplement in it had said that they had translated this uh in 1656 and there's a whole bunch of errors So, (laughs) so it was taking that and saying no don't read this 
read this because this one was wrong. He was miscalculating. I think he was looking by candlelight. He didn't see that last little character in there. But it, it, it's been a lot of fun then going back and saying, okay, if this comes from here, 50 years before the alleged Dutch importation of gin from the Dutch king who became the king of England, 50 years beforehand, I said, so where else does it show up? It shows up in 1602 in a lady's household kitchen book in England. It shows up uh, in 1527 because a man translated a German distilling book from 1500 in England and produced it in English. So what Dutch? But that German book also wasn't the first German book. The writer in 1500 had used a book from 1476. 1476 already. Yeah. Distilling juniper spirit in Germany. And made with with grain spirit, not with wine spirit. So at the end is with grain spirit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that made it to England. And in 1638, the Worshipful Company of Distillers, the Distillers Guild was founded. And 1639, the year after, they wrote this book for the guild members, the Distiller of London. They wrote it in code so that only the guild members could use it. But in it, there was a recipe, aqua fructum, water of fruits that used juniper and orange and lemon peel and spice supported. It's practically a modern gin recipe, but there it was in 1639. So it's not so modern anymore. (laughs) It's like... No. 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 And and our our friend Desmond Payne from from Bee Theatre and Sean Harrison from Plymouth and I have sat and talked about this and said, well, we know that that London dry gin specifically uh, really didn't come come into being until 1823. And I said, but somewhere the recipe came before the continuous still that made London dry gin, London dry gin. And they said, well, we don't know. Maybe the Dutch. And I'm like, hmm, okay. Uh, (laughs) So essentially they were drinking Geneva during the gin craze in the early 1700s. That's documented. And there was a lot of importation of Geneva and production of it. But where did gin come from? This very different spirit made with citrus and spices. It had been here already. Mm-hmm. And then it returned. So the Geneva was not the parent of gin. It was just a fad. You know, it was like mm-hmm. everyone sitting down and drinking mezcal for a, a different <laughs> thing for a little while, then going back to having whiskey. Or okay. going back to tequila. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know. Wow, wow. So... Now, this is my overwhelming a bit because everything I learned, everything I knew about genies was like, now it's... Psh- oh, well. Not anymore. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. Yeah, that, yeah. I'm, oh, I'm, present, I'm presenting all of this at two international uh, university conferences uh, that, that specialize in food and drink, and they both want me to come and talk about this, so I'm going to get the academic world interested too and say, ooh, ooh, ooh. hey, yeah, yeah. we can start rewriting things again. <laughs> Let's rewrite history. So that's exactly. you didn't even write history, you rewrite history in the right way. 
That's the way mm-hmm. it happens. History is not written in stone. That's the one thing I've learned in all in the past five years of going back to university is history is not written in stone. Just wait for somebody to come along and find something else that's been hiding under a rock that somebody's finally pulled out and said, hey, this is interesting. <laughs> Wow, wow, wow. This is so nice. And and thank you for sharing this this information. And, and for the listeners, if they want to find out more, where they can find out more information, where they can uh, go a bit um, deeper. And, and the Distiller of London. So the book is yeah. The Distiller of London. Google it. You yeah. can find out. It's it's available on mixcelony.com. Yeah. Mixelany.com for the listeners. I will put yeah. this in the description for uh, for the listeners yeah. if you want to if you because deeper on the on this course. Yeah, because we decided that uh, you know you can get it through Amazon, blah blah blah. But the the profits from this particular book are going to the the worshipful company of distillers to they have for their charity. Yeah, they have so, an industry charity. All proceeds go there. Yeah. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. So, Well, they've been taking care of bartenders in in England since this whole lockdown thing happened, and giving giving them no payback loans mm. to to get them through. And super so nice. we're strongly, yeah, super super nice. And they've been doing it for years, but this is one occasion where they they they're definitely going through the funding. So you know, it's 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 worthwhile to keep everybody going. Yeah, yeah, to keep another group, another great place for more learning on this is a website EUVS Library dot org dot com dot com dot com. You're right. Dot com dot com US Library EUVS Library VS library.com good good yeah I, i wrote it i will put it also in the description for the listeners so find out more information because history is not what it seems to be <laughs> no an uvs no. library we created with a friend of ours and i believe we made it through over 150 books of some of the rarest hardest to find old cocktail books and we'll scanned and digitize them and put them onto this website no password no branding searchable across the platform and free and free and free wow. uh especially if if someone's looking for cuban cocktail books uh old ones and see what was going on in the 30s and the 20s we've got them up um some books you will not find i mean well the oldest oldest cocktail book from the UK 1827 uh is up and in a couple of different versions um but some of them we can't do like embery everybody keeps asking us well can you put up embery and i keep saying ask mud puddle books because they own the rights to it mm, they yeah. but they bought the rights to make a special but edition they they so. also did a beautiful edition <laughs> so if you're looking for a copy but cocktail kingdom yeah dot com has has a gorgeous copy of embery available yeah nice nice so but but you know we tried to find some of the ones where because people have no idea especially about cuban cocktails have no idea what the history is or what the real background is we thought this is a good place to start uh the same thing when it comes to oldest cocktail books and realizing that again the uk did it again 
Well, uh, the, the first book entirely <laughs> devoted to drink recipes yeah. was Oxford Nightcaps yeah. from Oxford University, first printed in 1827. 1827, so so the, the Englishmen started to drink earlier, so they, they also wanted yeah, to put it down for, for everybody. So it's from the everybody university. Yes. to look at. The first, first cocktail book is from the university, you know? Well, yeah. that, that was the first book of drinks, but they didn't have a cocktail in it yet. The first yet. book to contain yet. cocktail recipes, uh, Jerry Thomas, 1862, that would be... Um, Oh, too much reflection. Hang Here, on. take the reflection off. Yeah. There we go. There we go. There we go. The bartender's guide. Although, again, the secret of this book is, is Jerry Thomas did not invent all the drinks he had in this book. Because in the very, very tiny, tiny type, actually you'll see it in the EUVS library, very tiny, tiny type under some of it says, after soyer. And so there are drinks that he actually... He actually took from observing Alexei Benoit Soyer, who was the first celebrity chef of England when he came over here in the 1850s to try to find a job. Jerry Thomas came yes. over to England, yeah. worked as the bartender in an American bowling saloon in a park in London <laughs> because this French chef in England didn't hire him, turned him down for a so he's job. Was too crazy. <laughs> but he loved that chef's work so much that he included at least six recipes yeah. in his 1862 book from this French chef in England. If anyone wants to learn more about the man who influenced Jerry Thomas, you have to read a book called Relish, which Relish? is the life relish. The Life of Alexis Benoit Soyer. And it's a fascinating read. Well worth it. Well, especially he was the first man who made sure that uh, kitchen chefs wouldn't die uh, because they were they were working down in basements. And mm. were, all, all the kitchens were in basements. They were using coal and wood. People were dying from, from smoke inhalation. He was the first chef to say, I want air vents in my in my restaurant in my kitchen and so when they when uh, the reform club opened he, he had come over from paris he, he opened the reform club kitchen it was the first place that had air ventilation wow he, he also <laughs> quit his job as a celebrity chef built a special stove that could be very portable and then built a lot of them he went to the crimea and fed troops there well, saving, saving 40,000 lives one winter. Then he went to Ireland with these stoves during the potato famine, and he set up portable kitchens, and he fed something like 60,000 people a day through his portable kitchens when they were starving. But he wasn't always so serious. You remember the bright blue drinks and the jelly shots from so drink yay. history. He invented the blue really? drink and, and the, the jelly, jelly shots. shots. Really? <laughs> okay, okay. Oh, and the first ice cream drink. Yeah. And the first ice cream drink for Queen so Victoria, the Soy ice cream drink. Eighteen thousands? With gin. Oh, wait, no, this was... Soy, yes, soy champagne. 
that had gin in it. Didn't yes. It? Yeah, it was gin, gin champagne, ice cream. ice cream. Touch of maraschino. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, and some people thought that it, it said silk of champagne, but they didn't understand French, so they got it wrong. It was actually Alexi Benoit Soyer coming up with this great ice cream champagne cocktail. And if you go on EUVS Library and you go into the 1862 Jerry Thomas, you'll find that recipe, Soyer au champagne. And you'll also find... They'll also find the punch jelly yeah. in there, which was Soye's punch jellies. So everything <laughs> comes from Soye, those those crazy Those drinks. particular crazy ideas. Yeah. I mean, I, I wondered because when I first saw that Jerry Thomas said, you must make sure ladies not must not have more than one cube of punch jelly. And when I realized, I made some once, and I realized you're talking about 45 mils of alcohol in one cube. So, yeah, if you had more than two cubes in a sitting, you'd have some very drunk women on your hands. (laughs) And he's like, just eating ice cream. I'm having an ice cream. Yeah, just sit there going, oh, this is great. (laughs) And when I saw these servings of of ice cream drinks, I was thinking, wow, this is so nice. And I saw it in like in modern cocktail competitions. And I was thinking, wow. But now, as you said, it is like, this is (laughs) hundreds of years ago. But it's great. It's great. I can give you a a very practical reason to look at these sweet, creamy drinks. In a restaurant, the dessert menu, you can sell a lot of desserts, a lot of puddings. Um, And your food cost, if you're doing well, it's going to be about 35%. But your bar, if you're doing well, those drinks, your beverage cost should be 14%, 15%. So if you sell someone a dessert drink for dessert instead of a piece of cake for dessert, if you sell each of those for six or eight euros, you make more money selling drinks than desserts. So every place that has a good bar, a good bartender should have dessert drinks on the dessert menu with desserts. That's so practical. That's a secret you shared here with the listeners. Oh yeah, <laughs> and you it's, increase it's the, the profit margin. You increase the margin of the of the the, the whole place. Oh yeah, New York. Yeah. New York. Who was it? Dylan Prime. Dylan Prime was a, a steakhouse restaurant with a fantastic cocktail bar. Uh, it was near Wall Street in the 1990s, and this guy made a whole, he did a whole menu of dessert cocktails called Cake Tails and Pie Teenies. So you had an apple pie martini. He had my favorite, the German chocolate cake wow, cocktail. Sounds good. And just, it was like all the good flavors, but it just in a glass. And people would go and have their steak and their Manhattans or their martinis and then he'd say, would you care for a pudding? And they go, no, until they saw the cocktail list and go, I'll have a cocktail. <laughs> so they didn't have to spend as much money on the bakery. They spent a lot of money on the cocktail. <laughs> and you, you start having, if you start drinking cocktails, then it's it easier to order some more. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it, it, it worked beautifully. They were incredibly successful until, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, Twin Towers, I think, 9 11. Mm-hmm. 
So, and that that's when business kind of went weird in, in in Wall Street. But it was like until then, they had it. They had a decade of just nonstop stockbrokers and young hips people coming from from Soho and everybody coming down to this one place for the fact they could get special special steaks and get really special pudding cocktails. <laughs> So they they work they work. Oh yeah, it was a good concept, mm -hmm. really so good concept. Can uh, can you share us a bit with uh, with the listeners? What projects are you working during this period? I you you already shared a few things. <laughs> I, I I'm absolutely sure there are hundred more. Just have some brief description. What are you doing do, during these times? Um, well, the uh, the widow of the famous uh, bar English barman Dick Bradstill and mm. I are finally putting together a book of all of his materials. So that's taking us a bit of time because it's a lot of material. But uh, hopefully, we'll be ready by the end of end of end of autumn. And uh, the bar that I'm a part owner and the Dark Horse Bar in Bath is opening the terrace in another few days so <laughs> oh, i heard yeah i heard that's good news for <laughs> for you oh yeah we've been we've been doing takeaway cocktails which mm. has worked out fantastically during the whole time because there were yes. a lot of clients going what are you opening what are you opening goes just here's the menu just go down pick up a cocktail uh but at least we'll have the terrace open and and we can start having business again or at least partially having business again, slowly, and then we'll keep it up during the summer. Slowly, slowly, yeah, yeah. yeah. We hope that uh, slowly, slowly, will will release and the the industry will revive again. Well, we were very lucky when we when we found the property because it has this huge town square, uh, right. You come right up upstairs from our from our bar, and there's this beautiful town square. So we have a good portion of it that we're allowed to take and just set tables up and we have a system to get get all the drinks upstairs, certain menu upstairs versus the ones downstairs. So nice. Fingers do, crossed. Do, do you have like, a, can you share an address or a, or a site or the Facebook page so the listeners can follow all the... Yeah, all the... Uh, it's darkhorsebar.co.uk and we're at Kingsmead Square in Bath. Uh, and then the the its sister bar, the Crying Wolf, is in Bristol, but we don't have any outdoor space there, so we're still going to have to wait until we can open beyond takeaway takeaway cocktails. Mm. But it's it's been fun trying to trying to trying to keep two menus going so that we have food because the licensing here we have to have food in order to stay open later. Uh, it's also a matter of trying to keep it down to, we'll have six specialty cocktails at, at once every six weeks. Mm. And that's all. Nice. And then, you know, you can, you can put the rest on, you know, Martini Manhattan, that's always on call. And then the rest of it's just straight local beers and things like that. But just trying to keep it as simple as possible. And during the one period between the two lockdowns we had, we were packed seven days a week. Wow. So people oh. like that simplicity of it. It's they don't want they don't want too much too much confusion. They go, what's on this season? Great. Okay, good. 
well. But simplicity, yeah. this is a thing that uh, I'm very curious about, about simplicity, because uh, the, the, the real, the qualitative simplicity, it's harder than making it complex. Yes, it's <laughs> it is something true. Very simple, but very tasty and, and with good sense and, and something marvelous, but simple. Yes, it is hard, but you just have to be very mindful of the fact that you can make a, 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 a well-priced offering and still use high quality ingredients. I mm. think people lost sight of that with high volume because they go, oh no, I can use it, whatever. And it's, it's okay because I'm going to put nine ingredients in it. Who cares? Exactly. Disguise it. Yeah. yeah, you don't even feel it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, forget that. <laughs> how, how did Audrey handle that? Which? Oh. At Pegu. Of what? <laughs> oh, a dear friend of ours, Audrey Saunders, opened Pegu Club oh, in New yes. York in 2006. Mm -hmm. And whenever a bartender working for her wanted to get one of his drinks or her drinks onto the menu, they'd go to Audrey and say, here, taste this. And maybe she liked it. She'd taste it. Oh, that's good. Lose two ingredients and bring it back to me. <gasps> No, I need three different kinds of bitters. I need the two different vermouths. I need, no, come back with two less ingredients. And they would, she'd taste it. It's getting better. Lose another two <laughs> ingredients. <gasps> but if you look at all of the classics, the martini, the Manhattan, the daiquiri, the margarita, etc., virtually all the classics are only three ingredients, maybe four ingredients. Tops. Some of them just two ingredients. Some of the the new classics that we've seen, like Audrey's um, Earl Grey Martini. Yeah. I think five ingredients. That's nice. her upper level. Or her old Cuban, her Pearl, three, four ingredients. Or Jörg Meyer out of Hamburg, Lillian creating the gin basil smash. Yeah. Four ingredients. And, and a spectacular drink. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where where uh, in fact the first time we met Dick, um, which was very difficult to do, but we what well, we did and uh, the first time we we crawled through uh, the back end of the Groucho Club to sit down and talk. And he sat me down. He said, "Before we say anything else, I only have one question: What? Uh, how many ingredients in a cocktail?" I went three, maybe four if we're really happy. And he goes, okay, we can talk. I was like, and if I had said more, he goes, no, I wouldn't talk to you. I'm like, oh. okay. So this is the criteria? This was the criteria? That was his criteria for friendship. Well, that, that <laughs> night, he, he, when we first met him in his bar in Soho, London, um, he'd asked us to just wait while the other customers left. And then he brought us into the men's toilet of the bar and he opened the window and we all climbed out the window of the men's toilet onto the roof we went across the roof and he opened a window and it was the men's toilet at one of the most exclusive members members clubs, clubs in london the groucho where all the celebs go and we climbed in and then we'll walk out of the men's toilet together into the club and the waitress looks over oh mr bradsell good to see you this evening your table is ready he had been sneaking in through the 
toilet window for so long that they gave him a membership, but he still refused to use the front door. Oh, wow, wow, that's... Made it very difficult to go for visits with him to there because I had to make sure I was wearing trousers or jeans. (laughs) I mean, that was was a hard thing to get through this tiny little window, but it was... (laughs) (laughs) At least we knew better. (laughs) (laughs) And what are you up to? He's up to things. I don't know what he... What are you up to? In general, these days... What are you up to? Other than Zoom. (laughs) um, in terms of what I've been doing in the office uh, because I'm doing a lot of distilling these days uh, having founded a a small gin company in London um, where we had a tiny garage delivery was anything outside the motorway around London or that was export Um, our distribution was a moped and like 12, years la- 12 years later, we are in 65 countries, but something huge just happened. Um, we are now Sips partner with Wimbledon. Wow. With Wimbledon Tennis. Last year, because they couldn't hold Wimbledon, they had all of these strawberries that they grow especially <laughs> for the event. <laughs> And these strawberries were going to go to waste. For them, they were waste. For us, they were a wonderful opportunity. So we put all of the strawberries into the still with a very classic London dry formula, along with some mint as well, which is another classic English wow, so summer it's ingredient. Still London dry with, with strawberries and some mint. Yes, because nothing is added after distillation. So you can see it is a clear liquid. So the sugar of the strawberry is left behind, but all of the fruit flavor comes through. So it's a dry gin, but with the strawberry character. So this is Sipsmith Strawberry Smash uh, in partnership with Wimbledon. Wow, so it's like a limited edition or you, you still... Yeah. We, the we, listeners, we hope, if the the listeners want to 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 buy a bottle, can they do it everywhere, or it's harder it to maybe difficult. Maybe that difficult, one. but maybe whiskey exchange at best the, the, to get a, to get a hold of them. The Sipsmith <laughs> Classic London Dry that should be available Every, everywhere, yeah, and in almost as many places. The Sipsmith Slow Gin and the Sipsmith VJOP, the very juniper overproof. Mm. Um, and keep an eye on the Sipsmith side. You never know what it's coming up with. Yes. <laughs> you no, never know coming. which fruits are. I never know until he brings it home and goes, yeah, try this. <laughs> okay. You, you've heard the stories of where the term proof comes from. That proof was do you know this yeah with the with the with the rum or or uh, putting them on fire yeah actually uh, it's in this book from 1729 wow. believe it or not it's it's in this text and it says and for proof of your spirit of wine put a little gunpowder in a spoon which fill up with the spirit of wine then set the spirits on fire 
And if they be perfectly deflagmated, distilled, then they will burn dry and blow up the gunpowder. So great. There, there's actually the instruction to do that in a book as you know, before they had hydrometers and the, the other measures to see how strong the spirit was. It was right there. And I have done it. It does work. And it um, does the fireworks? <laughs> if, if, does the, the fireworks. if the alcohol is over 57.4% by okay. volume, then it will. But I'm not allowed to do it in the distillery anymore. Apparently, <laughs> health and safety, they say no. I wonder why. Oh, well. <laughs> I wonder why. But it, it really does work. And I don't recommend doing that or anything else that could injure you, of course. No. Be safe. Be safe. It's safer. Safety yeah. first. Safety first. <laughs> wow, But, uh, wow, Beyond wow. that, what am I working on these days? I don't know. What are you working on these days other than being on Zoom? Uh, growing botanicals. <laughs> yeah. And growing botanicals. also, yes, yeah, we, we have uh, about 40 fruit trees in our garden, uh, rare heritage varieties of apples, pears, plums, cherries, quinces, medlars. And then we grow two kinds of hops for beer and for other experimentation and we have of course wormwood um, angelica we grow licorice and uh, oris fiorentina coriander that's what we're doing verbena what are we doing uh we're doing a five-week course oh. through atlas obscura uh an hour and a half every every friday starting April 23rd, teaching people how to make floral champagnes from elderflowers and dandelion and how to make classic French ratafia. And basically taking things, not so much you have to have a garden to do it, but to go to a good greengrocer and pick up, you know, how to pick up really good fruits and, and, and herbs and spices and to make some, some very unique Offerings for not that not that much really. Oh, um, we have to do. Oh, vermouth. and making meat. We should do vermouth in the cafeteria. Yeah. Yeah, we have to do vermouth in the cafeteria. So, if, if the listeners want to to follow the the, the course, are there f uh, free seats? Are can they uh, there, or or? I think they're going to be doing some sort of a uh, on YouTube that okay. they do. It, it's after the courses are done. A few weeks later, they do release things onto YouTube. So I'm not too sure what's going on with that for certain, but uh, it's with atlasobscura.com. It's uh, okay. outfit out in uh, New York. So, yeah. Okay. So we'll see how it Super goes. Nice. But yeah, yeah. Nice. So we figured we've been writing about that for 10 years and really haven't uh, haven't gotten it all to one point where we could say, let's just get a bunch of people together and start making crazy stuff. <laughs> and we'll see what's happening. <laughs> Yeah, then we'll see what happens. So, we'll see. This should be fun. Uh, for sure, it will be fun. <laughs> so you, you're doing plenty of things. I'm sure that you are doing thousands of things uh, besides. But can, can you share a bit what is like where it all started? What's a, a bit like briefly your, your backstory in this industry? You were born into it. I was born into it. My father worked in the bourbon business. Uh -huh. uh, in, yeah. 
And so I, I, I was one of those children that when you were unruly and you wouldn't go to bed at night at five years old, you would go, here, have some orange juice with some bourbon in it. Yeah, okay, I got a taste for it then. Uh, it tastes better. I, you're much better. Uh, I, went to, I went to school in the UK, but my, my father uh, had us going back, and my sister and I going back and forth to the United States. And when we come back to the US in the summertime and stayed with him, uh, he'd go, He'd go to the go to this one bookshelf and he'd pull out a book and say say here find a recipe and make it for me. There's two things I learned in this, which is is children are very dangerous around vermouth because they always put too much vermouth in. Uh, the other thing I learned very early on was my father was terrible at keeping fresh vermouth. He had dusty bottles of vermouth and they were vinegar. So he asked me not to make him drinks with vermouth <laughs> ever again. And I thought, well, if that's a lesson learned. I'll start working with liqueurs now. <laughs> but he also, he also brought her to the company barbecues in the summer. Yeah. Where she met other kids like Fred No, no. <laughs> who went on to be the master distiller for Jim Beam. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. And they knew each other when they were little kids. Yeah, so I, I was around around bars for a long time. And then I got my first bar job when I was 16, because in Chicago... So that was after you had your first martini. Yeah, my first martini was served at the Savoy. My father took me to the Savoy. Uh, they was, just hired a young Italian bartender. Red-headed upstart, Peter Dorelli. And uh, he, he, it was just before they moved him over to the Pebble Bar. Uh, but he was there, he was at the Savoy just for a few months and he made me a martini and I fell in love. Wow. Both with Dorelli and with the martini <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> so <laughs> I decided then, bartending is great. I mean, people take care of you and you get all these, you know, wonderful things going on around you and look at this drink. And yeah, that was the end of it. So, so your first bartending job? Chicago, 16 years old. Uh, I came one summer and I wanted to do something. So I ended up uh, getting getting a job as a bartender. It was a very simple interview. The guy looked at me and said, okay, you look right, now make me a drink. And I said, what do you want? He goes, whatever you feel like making. I made him a Manhattan. I was hired immediately. <laughs> but that was a busy bar, wasn't it? It was it was a 425 seat high volume bar in the nightclub district in Chicago. It was about six blocks away from my father's uh, apartment. And uh, you're talking uh, the your uh, your shifts were eight hours. So mine was 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. And on a weekend you were making minimum wage a dollar dollar fifteen an hour but you were making about 200 a night in tips because americans are really good tippers so <laughs> yeah that was back in the 60s that was back in the 60s dale DeGroff has similar stories about about the 70s and 80s it was just insane what americans will pay, give you for a tip and it'll be just like i only gave you a beer why are you giving me 20 dollars <laughs> because you smiled maybe <laughs> i smiled i smiled i took care of my one hi how's your day uh, that's the whole point. So. <laughs> then you were bartending in a fisherman's bar in yeah. Seattle. Yeah, fisherman's bar in Seattle. That was fun. The fleet would come in, these big 
big, burly Norwegian and Swedish guys who come in. They want to eat at the bar and they'd want a steak. They're just playing with all this fish. They want a steak. So they wanted a steak and good, strong drinks. So I'd be serving Manhattans, martinis, nothing frilly, beer on beer chasers with the cocktails. And then they taught me how to play pool. So, <laughs> so it helped. I learned how to play billiards. I wouldn't have known otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> Did some years behind the stick, behind the bar. Yeah, you... that was that was some fun years. Those were definitely some fun years. It was it was worth it was worth the education for for the early run of it before I went on to do other things for a while. But by the time we we actually opened a bar together in New York with some friends. Uh, at least I knew what the system was and what was going on. And even we opened one bar with Sasha Petrosky. We knew what the girls had to look like, how they had to serve the drinks. It was like, no problem. Everything, <laughs> everything was set. Exactly. Exactly. Well, she, she called it a bar that we opened together with a couple of friends in, well, Ephraim. Ephraim. With Ephraim Keyless in New York. But it was actually a 750 capacity nightclub that we opened. Um, it was a townhouse building. So each floor was different. If you went downstairs, it was all boiler makers and pool tables. So shot and a beer. And we had a whiskey and beer menu where they were all matched, flavor matched which whiskey would be best with which beer. And then if somebody was going to do a depth charge where you take that shot of whiskey and you drop it into your beer, we had the whole back bar of whiskeys repeated in a freezer, glass freezer below that. You don't want warm whiskey and so cold beer. All the whiskeys to be dropped in a beer were frozen along with shot glasses that were frozen. So you would drop an iced whiskey in an ice shot glass into your beer. Next level. <laughs> next yeah. 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 And then the uh, the uh... the next the main floor was a bottle service nightclub. Yeah. Except the bottle service, we didn't like this idea that you buy you end up with a bottle of vodka and a thing of bad cranberry juice and bad orange juice and What are you paying for? No, we had a menu. And maybe you ordered the mojito menu. So the waitress would bring over the full mojito prep on the tray along with the bottle of rum and the first time teach you how to make the mojitos. And then when people came back, they could say in front of their friends, oh no, I know how to do this. And teach them different drinks. We had a Moscow mule menu. We kept these simple, of course, a martini. And constantly changing them so nobody knew what was coming the next time they came. So they wanted to come way. back to learn to make more drinks. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, they might get a bucket of hand-carved ice balls to use to put into the drink. Uh, any part of your service can be made better if you just stop and you look at it. And you know, simple is more difficult than complicated because it requires you studying every element 
as much as possible. But then the third floor was kind of crazy because we had also co-founded the Museum of the American Cocktail with Dale DeGroff and his wife and a group of a group of other people. And we decided, well, we only had a temporary place for the museum at that point, one in New Orleans in the Pharmacy Museum. And we said, okay, well, you can take the third floor and we'll have a small cocktail museum set up on the third floor. So once a week, we would open the bar and have different guest bartenders come. So we had Gary Regan one time, he was hilarious. We had Dale, we had Dale's son, Leo. Uh, we did a few stints, Audrey did a stint. It was just, we, we just said, come on down. You decide what you want it, what you want to pour and give us a menu. We'll hand it out when people come in and they can order your drinks. And that was it. It was, and it was then a the nice once a week fun thing to do. Then the floor above that, well, also we would, after that early opening, that bar would get taken over by the floor below, the big nightclub space. The spike teals on the banquette. Group. So the banquettes were made of Kevlar. <laughs> yeah. They were like the stab vests. We used that material so that when the ladies got up dancing on the banquettes in spiked heels, they wouldn't put holes through the banquettes. There was one problem in New York, yeah. all over New York in the 1990s and, and, and two, early 2000s. Was yeah. You'd have these beautiful leather banquettes with punch holes <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> it's like, come on, guys. <laughs> make so, them bulletproof. <laughs> but the, the last floor in this bar upstairs from there was um, trolley service. So strictly a bartender coming around with a cart to all of the tables. And it was pure bartender's choice. And guests before they went up there were told the only thing you can say to the bartender in terms of what drink you want is yes <laughs> no you go back down because this yeah. is purely about celebrating that bartender's artistry that night and, it was and you, the if you go up the, the, yeah. the last floor, like you, you, you climb to arrive there. <laughs> yes. You ascend to artistry. That's funny because Henry Besson uh, actually came for a visit to New York just when we were opening the place, and he saw our our, our cocktail carts and brought them to um, Quo Vadis the first round. Was Quo that it? Yeah, was ah. at Quo Vadis and, and also to the Lonsdale. So it, it came over here from after Henry saw it and said, that's insane, that's perfect. And we said, please, go ahead, do it. But the the trolley it. service goes back much further. Uh, in the late 1800s in New York, it was very popular, but only briefly. And then when Prohibition was repealed in 1933 in New York, uh, at one point they said, well, yeah, you can serve alcohol again, but you can't serve it over a bar because the guests cannot sit at a bar. They have to sit at tables and the bar must be closed. So they did that, but the bartender said, I'm not gonna stand in the back like the cook. No, oh, no, no. I'm gonna just deliver your drink on this cart and maybe I'll put it together at the table. And so 
table-side drink service became huge in post-prohibition New York. I'm a then big it fan faded of away. Trolleys. Yeah, I'm a big fan of trolleys. Yes. I love trolleys. Yeah. Yeah, at least people really get to see what the artistry is. I mean, if you want the you want the you want the theater, that's the theater. Mm. Yeah, they, uh, Ago Perone does it at uh, the Conan. And I love his when he comes with his martini trolley. I mean, it's it's an official sign. The master's here. But Kano did pretty well in World's 50 yeah. Best, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, something about number first, one. number one. <laughs> you know, I always look at Ago and go, what do you think you're doing? What's but going he, on here? He definitely deserved, <laughs> he and his team, he and Giorgio and the rest of them, yeah. they deserve that. They, they, really they work they do that. so hard. Oh, yeah. On every, yeah. every detail and always studying. Mm. Yeah. Or even, you know, just even the idea of little things when he first uh, had had uh, cocktails from the Connaught printed so that if someone said they really liked a particular drink, he would hand them the recipe so they could go home with it. I, 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 I was impressed about that. I still have those the drinks that I had. I was so yeah. impressed about that small detail, which makes the difference. Yeah, yes. but it's again, it's that simplicity of the connection between you as the host versus your guest and your guest feeling like they have to come back to see what new thing they can find or come back and have another repeat of it and go, what now, What did I do that you don't do? And, you know, let's see what happens. But at least you start a relationship, and which is wonderful. Yeah, and that's hospitality. Yeah. That's hospitality. Yeah, that's that's the thing that I think sometimes you, you see people have lost sight of. It's not just you, it's the, how much a connection you can make mm. with the person in front of you. You mm. know, uh, Dale DeGroff was fabulous at it. I remember going, going to the White Rainbow Room and he would literally come up to you, put the napkin down and then spread his arms out as if he's trying to embrace you over the bar and go, hey baby, what do you want? Big like, smile. <laughs> He's got me. <laughs> He's got me. I want some, some air. <laughs> yeah, please. He's got me. Wow, <laughs> Think wow. of something quick. <laughs> But it's that, it's that that feel of of ooh yeah. Mm. Bring him in. Bring him in. Make him feel good. Make him feel great. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's another bar that uh, was down the street for me when we were living in New York just before just when I met Jared. You would go in there at three o'clock in the afternoon. The barman was fantastic. Uh, he had the most magnificent old bar in the world behind him as a backdrop, the old Knickerbocker Hotel bar. Old wood, beautiful. And he would just, he had a napkin just sitting in a spot and another napkin sitting in a spot. And you go, no, you can't sit there. And you'd be like, okay, can I come down to this end of the bar? Yeah, there's a couple still, still there. Three o'clock, religiously. A novelist would come in. A stockbroker would come in. They all had their own seats. He kept those seats for them just where they were. The second he saw them, he'd be ready with whatever drink that he knew that they wanted and whatever warm-up drink they wanted before they actually started seriously drinking. And you just look at the guy and go, you're a genius. You're a master. I love you. You remember who's at your bar. <laughs> What is hospitality? I think Gary Regan put it best, which is the whole job 
of not just the bartender, but across the industry, is to ensure that people leave feeling better than when they came in. Mm -hmm. Wow. Otherwise, otherwise they should go home and drink. <laughs> Yeah, nobody goes to a bar for a drink, yeah. in truth, except maybe an airport bar. But um, that's because you're waiting. You, <laughs> if you just if you want a drink, you buy a bottle and you go home. Mm. If you want an experience, yeah, it, well, let's let's talk about bread here. You've got two bakeries side by side. One sells a loaf of bread for two euros. The other sells it for three. A year later, one of them's out of business. Okay, now you have a bar and an off-license or liquor store next to each other. One sells a bottle for 30, the other sells it for 250. Oh, by selling it per drink. And yet, five years later, they're both still in business. This one's selling the same product for you know, five times, six times, seven times more than the cost of the other. They're still going so clearly, people are not just going in for a drink. They're going in for the experience. Mm. They go in in the hope they will leave feeling better than when they came in. There you go. You pointed so well. This is music to my ears. <laughs> <laughs> How do you make that happen? You make it starts with the greeting, more important than a great drink. You know, the worst thing that a bartender can do is focus entirely on the drink and spend the whole time showing the top of their head. I always hate that. It's yeah. like, I really don't want to see your dandruff. Yeah. So, you... <laughs> I don't think it's going to have hair, so I can... <laughs> you need to understand how the, guests, the guest feels. So it's important to remember the last time you walked into a strange bar for the first time because you feel like a complete stranger. You feel unwelcome until the moment the bartender looks up. Maybe they're three deep at the bar, but they look up. They just give you a little nod, a quick wave, a smile. That's all it takes to change from you being unwelcome to you feeling welcome. Yeah. And that is so fundamental, so important. At a restaurant, you feel unwelcome until the hostess greets you. Mm. Maybe the hostess is very busy. The hostess just brushes by, but looks you in the eye, smiles and says, forgive me, I'll be with you in a minute. What a huge difference that makes. That and the same thing on departure, the thank you, the recognition. And in between, if you're very good, you learn much more about that person than they learn about you. Ooh, ooh that's deep. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, it's, it's the, the one thing. Yeah. Be interested. Yeah. Mm. Or, 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 or don't forget, that was the one thing I learned. Uh, Peter and I talked about this more than once. This is when I was, when I first was working in a bar, the manager told me, you know, uh, If I, if I walk in here and I say, so what's what's going on today? I had to know about the baseball scores for the local teams. I had to know uh, if there was any, any earth-shattering news going on. I had to read the newspaper before I came to work 
so that at least I could have a conversation with the person in front of me. And if they ask, you know, hey, do you know what the score is? Yeah, right now it's about four, four to one. And so, you know, I think they're in the sixth inning right now. Take a look in the TV in the other room, you know, and it'd be, it'd just be like, just as long as you have some sort of information you can talk about or what books you've been reading. There was one bar in, in uh, Chicago that still does it, uh, the Old Town Bar. Uh, where the, the two barmen that were there, in fact, one of them is still there, uh, was probably one of the most well-read people I've ever met in my life. He had a PhD in philosophy, but he was so well-read that all you'd have to do is have a certain look on your face and go, hey, did you ever read? And he'd start a conversation with you about it while he'd be making you a black Russian. And you'd be like, wow, that was great. That was inspiring. Yeah. Yeah makes a huge difference. You actually have to be interested outside of yourself into other things. And, a, and it just makes you much more, much more entertaining to people. Mm. Mm. And it sounds so, so, so simple, <laughs> but to make yeah. it so simple, it has to be complex first and then simplified it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the words of Antoine de Zanazupari, author of The Little Prince, perfection is achieved not when there is nothing more to add, but when there is nothing left to take away. Wow, 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 I like it so much. Boom. And that, folks, is the author's message. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow, wow. That's yeah. brilliant, that's brilliant. Yeah, so, it's, I, I, it's inspiring. I like this conversation so much that I don't even manage to put the questions, but because you are giving the answers. <laughs> <laughs> that makes it easier, you know? <laughs> yeah, it makes my job a lot easier. I don't even have to put the questions. You are just giving the answers, giving the answers, talking about reality, and, and it's amazing. Yeah, this is like music to my ears. <laughs> oh, good. Good. <laughs> Uh, what's That's one quick, quick, uh, quick question? What's your secret sauce of being successful in hospitality industry? Be yourself <laughs> and don't show a big ego. You're not the star. You're 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 the caring person. You're the person who gives. You're not the person who's who's the rock and roll music. I've, I've met so many bartenders who say, you know, well, this is rock and roll, and I go. Not really. You're, you're here to give. You know, you're not here to, to say, watch me. And it's more, you're here to give. And if this is what a person wants, this is what you give them. Uh, I think that's the secret secret of, of hospitality is, is if you give what you can feel from people, that's, that's where you've made your success. And if you're attending bars, certainly one of the things you are giving, depending on the bar, is entertainment and so there is that element of rock and roll but if you spend any time with a successful musician they are not that same person off stage yeah. off stage they are forever students and in this you must also be forever a student i have a four-year degree in hospitality management and in food but while getting that degree I went out and I got a job scrubbing pots and I got promoted to dishwasher. And then I got promoted to salad prep. 
and I worked every position in the kitchen. Then a friend said, you should also get a job as a waiter. I've got a place where you can get a job. I did. Then um, the bartender said, I'd love to train you in as a bartender. And so I got some bartender training there. Fortunately, I also got a job in another place as a waiter, uh, the Rainbow Room in 1990, uh, where I was walking by the service bar one afternoon and the head bartender, Dale DeGroff, said, hey you, you wanna see how to flame a twist? <laughs> sure, why not? Uh, <laughs> and a few, minutes, a few minutes later, there's a, a peeled orange, 20 spent kitchen matches, and me having yet new passion, so much new passion for making drinks, thanks to Dale, you know, back 1990. But we are forever students. We are still studying, always. I think the, the singer Eartha Kitt put it best. My real diploma, my tombstone. Because until then, I have not graduated. Wow, wow, wow. So you are dropping bombs here. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. never, never feel like any job is beneath you or like you should just jump straight up. I know so many people in the last 15 years who they get their first job as a bar back and they expect six months later they're going to get a job as brand ambassador for some company having been a star bartender all in six months relax take your time this is an Calm industry <laughs> where in a lifetime even if you do it the slow route you're probably going to make more in your lifetime than a doctor or a lawyer mm. nice. so nice. take it easy study learn from the masters around you take it all in and remember you're also building a very essential brand you're building yourself as a brand and never forget that part that you must care for yourself as a brand because ultimately when you go out looking for a job you're selling yourself and the brand you have built. Mm -hmm. If you want to open a bar, you're selling yourself. And so always keep that in mind. Nice, nice, nice. Very well said. Wow, wow. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed. I'm <laughs> from the value bombs. <laughs> <laughs> How many times are you going to edit this chop this day? How would you describe your lives in one sentence? This is, this is like a question that I like a lot. How would you see your life like simplified in just one sentence? How would you describe it? <laughs> the adventures that happen when you forget to say no. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that is it. When you just say that yes to opportunities. Really uh, Magic happens. Go ahead. 
take take that chance. Keep your ears and eyes open. It's amazing how something comes along and all of a sudden you're doing something and you go, why not? Why not? Yeah, and 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 it's it's always led to something else and to something else and to something else, and we've ended up living in how many different countries in the past thirty years? I mean, it's ridiculous. So just keep going. So we had a fun journey, always learning, always being a student, enjoying this industry. Yeah. Rewriting yeah. history. <laughs> Rewriting history oh, here yeah. and there. <laughs> <laughs> well, but history, history changes with the information that's discovered. In fact, the whole history of drink changed, um, I think it was two years ago, perhaps three. A team of archaeologists out of the University of Stamford were working in what is now Israel, studying a semi-nomadic tribe, and discovered that 13,000 years ago, they had been malting wheat and barley to make beer. 13,000 years ago. So this sets the whole history of alcohol back about 5,000 years on the spot. But they weren't picking up rotten fruit and getting a cheap buzz. No, this was complicated brewing technique. But the most interesting thing of it was semi-nomadic. This is the point at which we as a civilization moved from being hunter-gatherers to farmers, not to bake bread, but to make booze. <laughs> civilization was born with the discovery of intentional fermentation, of alcohol production, because we could not live in a settled community without, with, without alcohol, because we poison our water with our effluent, with our bodily waste. So we had to keep moving. Now, brewing water into beer, fermenting into wine, we could live in settled community. So when we were serving drinks behind the bar, and I still, you know, with lockdown, I haven't been able to, but I still get behind the bar probably once a month. And I work as a bartender. Mm. Absolutely. You know, never, never let go of the things that bring you joy. But we are serving what was the water of life. Wow. Wow. So we we are here to serve. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Wow. wow. It's a great place to be. Yeah. It's, and it's it really fulfilling to, to do it. It's like it's meaningful to, to do it because you know that if we can make people happier, and I strongly believe that in these hard times, it, uh, we need more hospitality. We need more people yeah. to think about how to make other people happy. Yeah, it really is the case. It, it's it's probably the best feeling on the planet. Mm. It really what, is. What happened after the Spanish flu? What happened after the Roaring Twenties? Yeah. Yeah. So a quick warning: one of the Get things ready. that happens after a <laughs> pandemic is over, people go out and party. And party. <laughs> exactly. It's it, it, so, it's it's in history that that uh, you know because we spent so much time with the lockdown of the Spanish flu, 
that was the first thing everybody did was I'm going out there and I don't care who knows. <laughs> and there had to be a lot of people to serve them to do it. So, so yeah. for the listeners, get ready for... <laughs> for yeah, get ready. It's going to happen again. Big It's going to be a party. party. <laughs> Thank you for the yeah. insights. I, I am sure it's very useful for, for the listeners because I'm the industry is passing through hard times. Everybody is like, are, are passing through hard times. And, and these are good news that soon, soon, we will be back there again. Oh, we'll be back. We'll be back. And hopefully everybody's nice and refreshed and ready to go on. <laughs> Wow, thank you very much for, uh, we passed a bit uh, a bit the time, but I, I, I would like to stay here and listen more. I would stay a few hours <laughs> if, 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 uh, if there weren't the time. Thank you for answering me, the, for answering the questions even before me asking them. <laughs> You're very welcome, but thank you for having us on as well. It was yes. a pleasure. Do you have like a, 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 a one last message for the listeners before uh, before going? One big takeaway that you want them to take from this uh, this episode of the podcast? Some. Uh, I think John Lennon was five when the teacher asked the classic question, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And he answered, "I want to be happy." And she said you don't understand the question and he said no you don't understand life oh. if you want to be happy this is a great industry to find your success in because this is an industry that is about happiness as well wow thank you very much Thank you very much, Anastasia. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for uh, for accepting the invitation. It was amazing. Well, thank you, Paul. It was. A Hopefully, big... you've got enough tidbits in there. <laughs> It's more than enough. Thank you very uh, much. Okay. Thank All you right. for being part of this podcast. Thank you for the listeners that you stood and and you 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 were here with us. I hope it was very useful for you and get ready for when the pandemic is over, we'll be back there again. So I hope it was useful. Paul Skodlia here. See you next week. Cheers. Cheers.